0: Welcome to the Words Matter Library. I'm Katie Barlow. Stephen Weissman is the Vice President for Publications and Communications at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He previously served as a correspondent, editor, and editorial board member at the New York Times. Mr. Weissman won awards for, among other work, his reporting on the run-up to the Iraq War and has served as a New York Times bureau chief in Japan— and India, as well as a senior diplomatic and senior White House correspondent. He is also the author and editor of several award-winning books, including our focus today, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, A Portrait in Letters of an American Visionary. Stephen Weissman, welcome to Words Matter.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Also joining us today is our executive producer, Adam Levine,
2: In the interest of full disclosure, I uh, uh, started my career as an intern for Daniel Patrick Moynihan in 1989 and served him until 1998 when I left for the world of journalism. As you well know, one of uh, the things Moynihan was most proud of was when the Almanac of American Politics described him famously as the nation's best thinker among politicians since Lincoln and its best politician among thinkers since Jefferson. After you went through and edited his papers, do you think that the Almanac got it right?
1: Oh, I do. (laughs) Uh, He was a a delight to listen to, but his voice comes out, I think, in those letters uh, more powerfully and eloquently than in anything he wrote. His public speeches, of course, were full of uh, incisive insights and witticisms but uh, in so many of his letters and also even in his diaries from when he was in his 20s, he speaks from the heart. And in many cases, introspectively, which was not something that he did as a public figure, words just came naturally uh, from Pat Moynihan. And it was a pleasure, but also a challenge to edit the letters. Uh, As you remember, Adam, a number of papers that uh, Pat Moynihan left behind to the Library of Congress constitute the largest single collection of papers in the Library of Congress. I can't remember how many hundreds of feet of shelf space they take up. Those were not all letters. Many of them were public press releases and things that will be forgotten. But it was a very daunting task to read all of his letters and then to try to edit them, to pick out the gems, it was not that easy. Given that, given the volume of
2: letters, why did you decide to take on the
1: task other than it
2: being irresistible?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it was irresistible. It came at a, at the right moment in my life and work. I had been at the New York Times uh, since graduating from college in 1968. And I uh, was offered, along with many others, a retirement incentive package at a time the New York Times was downsizing in 2008. I always like to say that I worked at the New York Times for 40 years, which was as long as the Jews were wandering in the desert. (laughs) and uh, but just as i was taking a new job uh at the uh, economic policy uh, think tank the peterson institute for international economics this project drove up and the first uh, my first impulse was to say you know i'm taking a new job i have to devote all my efforts to that uh i thought of some other people that i recommended to public affairs books but finally, it, uh, I just thought more about it, and in the end, it was, as you suggest, irresistible. The other issue was that uh, it was going to be a very time-consuming task to go through the letters. So we had to enlist uh, assistance to literally take the boxes and photograph the letters in the uh, Library of Congress in the Madison Manuscript uh, Room and uh, then I would edit them. But the task of actually going through the, um, the letters and photographing them and zip photocopying them, uh, we needed help, so we had to raise money for that. That's a long story I won't go into, but we finally did. That made the book possible. When you talk about the Madison Building, I
2: just remember in the days before the internet as a young Moynihan staffer, he would call you in his office on a Friday afternoon Your newspaper once described it as – maybe it was you who described it as his masterpiece theater-like office. And he would be at that typewriter and you'd wait a few minutes and then he'd turn around. And I remember one in particular made me think of it when you were just talking. He looked at me and he said, why did Trotsky go to Mexico? And I had this (laughs) bewildered look on my face as a 25-year-old. And he said, you don't know. Go find out. And you'd spend the entire weekend in the Madison building (laughs) finding out why Trotsky went to Mexico. I think
1: he was probably the uh, biggest user of the Library of Congress of anybody in Congress.
2: Absolutely. I mean, he took full advantage of it. You you know, when he'd go up to the farm in the summers, he'd go with books from the Library of Congress. And part of a staffer's job was shuttling them back and forth. So no discussion of Pat Moynihan would be complete without talking about Elizabeth Brennan, the woman who later became his wife, um, began her political career ringing doorbells for James Michael Curley of Boston and later helped the Kennedys on the 1946 race where John Kennedy uh, ran for Congress and won. Steve, tell us a little bit about in the letters and in the papers how that partnership, because we always said as staffers, you didn't work for Senator Moynihan, you worked for the Moynihans.
1: You know, Liz Moynihan, who got her start, as you just mentioned, working for John F. Kennedy in his congressional and Senate races in Massachusetts, uh, always said that uh, she did the politics and Pat did the government. Uh, Of course, that was uh, a bit of a humorous uh, exaggeration because Pat was, loved politics. He did. And he loved politicians. He loved, uh, rascally politicians. I mean, you know, one of the best letters in the book was his, uh, letter to Carmine DeSapio, Sapio, who was serving time in federal prison for, uh, bribery, uh, and who had been the leader of Tammany Hall, who the, delivered- The last one. The last <laughs> great one who had delivered the New York, uh, votes to, uh, John F. Kennedy in 1960. And uh Pat writes to him in federal prison, you know, I've always admired you. And when you get out of federal prison, why don't you, why don't you stop by the Harvard Faculty Club? <laughs> I, I'm sure uh people here would have a lot to learn from you. <laughs> That's funny. So that is a digression from the question you asked, which is about Liz Moynihan. You know, I worked for a couple of years editing... Liz uh, uh, editing Pat Moynihan's letters and diaries, as you mentioned, and this was a project that the family supported, uh, and it was actually the idea of Maura Moynihan, their daughter, who wanted to uh, produce a volume that would really be a monument to to her father. And at the end of it, uh, the project, and I produced a massive set of documents on the letters. And also I wrote introductions to uh, each letter and introductions to each chapter. Uh, And we sent it to Liz Moynihan. And I remember coming into the office of the publisher at Public Affairs and meeting Liz there. And she arrived with this very thick manuscript that I had uh, sent her. And it had something like a thousand... Yellow sticky notes, only a thousand, <laughs> all, all, you know, larded through the, I don't know, the metaphor, oh but just gosh. sort of, you know, dot di- on every page. She had a um, comment,
0: <laughs> <laughs> many thoughts.
1: And so, uh, you know, I looked at it, the, the color drained from my face uh, and I thought this is going to be a nightmare. And uh, Peter Osnos, who was then the publisher of public affairs, looked at me and said, Steve, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Which he was more of a, it was an aspirational comment. <laughs> so then, uh, Liz, uh, and Clive Friddle, who was the editor on the project and I spent a full day. I think it was a full day, but it might have been more than a day in, uh, Liz's apartment page by page going through her comments. And every single letter in that book prompted a story oh. and a recollection, and this is how it happened, and, and then she would talk about Pat's relationship with the person that he was writing to. You, you c- can't imagine a more intimate relationship between husband and wife uh, than the experience I was privileged to have in going over those letters because she knew everything. She knew everything about the situations that the letters referred to, whether he was complaining to his optometrist about his glasses <laughs> or uh, or sending off a note to uh, the typewriter company because he was complaining about how their typewriter ribbons didn't uh. work or whether he was just... Uh, Writing to Nat Glazer, the the late great Nathan Glazer, who just passed away, or Saul Bellow, or leading American intellectuals, she knew it all. She did, and she, you know, they always described it as a mom
2: and pop operation. And I tell the story about it, if anybody needs to understand.
1: In that order. In that
2: order. <laughs> And uh, if anybody needed to understand the, the relationship and Liz's influence, I, I go back to St. Patrick's Day 1995. I was a staffer running his New York offices for him. And he always went every morning to Hugh Carey's breakfast at the Waldorf and then to the parade. Well, the day before he'd done and you describe him in places as mischievous, and he, he definitely was, he decided he was going to go to the New York uh, Daily News editorial board. And when he was asked about the Grand Marshal of the parade the next day and, – and coincidentally or important to note, it was also his birthday, uh, March 16th, before the editorial board. And he says uh, – he was asked about Jerry Adams and he – made the declaration that Jerry Adams was a fucking terrorist. That was what Moynihan said. I forget how the Daily News handled that journalistically at the time. But the word got out and um, the IRA put a hit out on him. And Moynihan was not somebody who was a stranger to those things, given his career in different places, including the U.N. And so when I arrived for the Hugh Carey breakfast, the single New York City detective that we usually had with us had 12 more of his colleagues And uh, presented me with a bulletproof vest, which I put on.
0: Oh, my God.
2: And um, Moynihan came down and Chuck Bennett, who was the detective who's since passed away, had been with him since the U.N. And he explained the threat, briefed the senator and advised that he wear the vest. And Moynihan launched into this uh, soliloquy about how he was from Hell's Kitchen. He'd been at the U.N. Idi Amin wanted to kill him. The Russians wanted to kill him. Palestinians wanted to kill him. And uh, he wasn't going to put on the vest. And Chuck Bennett, experienced with Moynihan, just picked up the phone and started dialing. And senator said, <laughs> who are you calling? And Chuck said, Liz. And Moynihan looked at me and said, lad, hand me that vest. It looks like about my size.
0: <laughs> That's a great story. Um, so you were talking about Liz getting her start working on the Kennedy campaigns, um, but but – Senator Moynihan's first stint in Washington was during the Kennedy administration where he was Assistant Secretary of Labor under Secretary and later Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg. What did Moynihan do in the Labor Department under President Kennedy?
1: He – operated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think to your point, he really didn't he, have he a defined turned, job. He didn't have a defined job, so he found things to do and really launched his career on the things that he found to do. Of The two biggest ones were, first, at the time of the Kennedy administration, uh, there was a fear that men who were being drafted were not up to... Uh, being able to serve in the armed forces at the height of the Cold War. This was a scary thing. So, Pat started investigating the issue of uh, manpower training and how to make sure that the youth of America were, uh, had the strength to serve it, you know, uh, in the battle against communism. And, uh, what he, uh, discovered, uh, in his inquiries was, uh, the severe problems of poverty in America, especially among African Americans, that um, ill-equipped the country and the citizenry to uh, serve uh, their country. And that led to his interest in manpower training and poverty and uplifting the poor. So it was a circuitous route, perhaps, from the Cold War to that issue But it was always one that uh, was central to his uh, heart and background because Pat Moynihan came from a family in which the father abandoned uh, his own family when Pat was young. And he settled on the idea of uh, fatherless uh, children as a factor holding young men back, which then led to his famous um, uh, discussion of uh, abandoned children and uh, fatherless families uh, that uh, really led to his controversies in the 1960s under Johnson and later Nixon. So, and his interest in welfare reform. So that was one thing that he did in the Kennedy administration, but the other was that the Labor Department was tasked for finding working space in downtown Washington for the new bureaucracy that was being created. Mm. And Moynihan, uh, in doing an inventory of all the buildings, put himself in charge of uh, architectural uh, design of these new buildings and architectural design of what he proposed to be the revitalization of Pennsylvania Avenue. So uh, that also started out of his labor department connections. And in many ways, uh, Pat Moynihan is the father of the modern Pennsylvania Avenue that uh, presidents uh, walk or drive down in their inaugurations. In the time of 1960, it was a derelict part of town with uh, crummy peep shows and uh, tourist shops and uh, abandoned buildings. And Pat set about selling Lyndon Johnson and later uh, Nixon on the idea of a Pennsylvania Avenue redevelopment project, which he carried into the Senate. It, it, he sold it to the Reagan administration uh, when he was in the Senate. Who was very supportive and of Reagan it. And Reagan was very supportive, which is why we have the Ronald Reagan International Trade, you know, uh, building on Pennsylvania well, okay. Avenue. So he was able to sell that by naming it after Reagan. He was very clever about those things.
2: I was going to exactly tell that story because, as again, as a young scholar, I found myself, young staffer, I found myself in the weird position of working on a book with him when Bob Dole then senate majority leader called up the senator and and newt gingrich and republicans had just taken over the house and pennsylvania avenue was in some of the projects were in jeopardy bob dole said uh, i have some good news and i have some bad news and he said well what's the good news bob dole said we're going to get the federal triangle which is what it was called back then finished and when he said well what's the bad news and he says well we're probably going to have to name it after Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> and Moynihan was fine with it. And again, he said, OK, Bob, that's great. But you're going to have to ask one person. And he called Liz. <laughs> and I just remember watching Bob Dole again, Senate Majority Leader, guy who'd gone through all he'd gone through in his life and say, yes, Liz, I understand. No, no, it's not optimal. No, I get no. There isn't any other. Pat and I have to- There's no. Absolutely. Okay. Thank thank you, Liz. I'm glad you're on board.
1: And the Ronald Reagan <laughs> building was named well, right there. Another great story, which is the, Pat had told me, but um, and I think it's in the letters that um, they were when they were building the federal courthouse near the Capitol, right near Union Station, I think it was supposed to be named after William Rehnquist, uh, who had just passed away. And uh, it was being built and all of that. Uh, maybe it was near completion, and Thurgood Marshall died. And Pat rushed uh, to the Senate floor and introduced a resolution saying, we're going to name the building after Thurgood Marshall. And in the uh, momentous emotional moment of the passing of Thurgood Marshall, it passed unanimously Uh, Or right away, who would dare to vote against it? And uh, the rug was pulled out from under the memory of William Rehnquist. And we now have the Marshall Building on the federal courthouse.
2: Absolutely. He'd learned. He wanted to make sure he got to decide what the name was. That's Um.
0: interesting, considering the the recent uh, activity on the Hill. There was a rush similar to that when Senator McCain passed away, and then that was quickly stomped out. It didn't follow the same...
1: You know, uh, when... Senator Schumer, Chuck Schumer, who was a protege of Pat Moynihan and took one of his courses at Harvard as an undergraduate. And Chuck Schumer, uh, on the day that McCain passed away, went to the Senate floor and in a complete echo of what his mentor had done, introduced that uh, resolution to name, I think, the Russell Building, to rename it after uh, McCain. And I guess... I suppose if they passed the resolution today, it would probably be vetoed, that might but be maybe right. it would be overridden. I don't know. They should pass it. They should pass it for sure.
0: So stepping back in time again to the Kennedy administration, where was uh, Senator Moynihan, then Assistant Secretary of Labor, on November 22nd, 1963?
1: He was uh, having a meeting with several of his colleagues to discuss plans for Pennsylvania Avenue, which they were going to present to President Kennedy upon his return from Dallas. And a word uh, came of the assassination, and I think they were meeting in Georgetown at um, the home of one of uh, uh, of his colleagues. Maybe it was William Walton. Or, it was Walton. Who, who was a designer, uh, an arts patron and supporter. And uh, they rushed uh, to the White House. They didn't know what to do uh, in tears uh, when uh, word came of the actual uh, death of Kennedy. And Pat staggered out into the street and ran into Mary McGrory, who he uttered one of his most famous phrases to, um when she said, uh, We'll never laugh again. And he said, uh, No, we'll laugh again. It's just that we'll never be young again. That quote has echoed through the decades, and it's appropriate for uh, this podcast to note that Pat knew, and this comes out in the letters, he knew that that was going to be remembered that those words were going to be remembered and he repeated them later to a wtop radio broadcaster and then afterwards he asked for the transcript from the radio station so he could be it could be preserved so he was a man of words and he knew damn well that he was a man of words. And he knew that his words would last. And, of course, the, his words lasted and many times came to bite him in the ass. If you par- <laughs> pardon the expression. Uh, you know, for some reason, he loved the phrase benign neglect, which uh, no one knows exactly the origin of the phrase from some... 19th century British politician, maybe Disraeli or whoever, and he advised Nixon, uh, to, um, have a period of benign neglect of racial issues, by which he meant r- racial rhetoric over issues, not over the cause of poverty or the cause of uplifting black people, but rather over the overheated rhetoric of the time. And the words came back and haunted him for the rest of his career.
2: Yeah, he, he would do that often with phrases, as, as, you, as you just noted. I mean, I remember one of the phrases, and you have the discussion of it as well, where he was asked about President Clinton's welfare reform by Tim Russert, his former staffer, and he said, oh, that's just boob bait for Bubba's. Well, I wanted to, to find the phrase, so this was in the early days of Nexus, and so I started researching, and I'd found that he'd given gridiron speech about David Stockman, who'd been the Moynihan Children's babysitter at Harvard when he was a divinity student. And he had described David as a mole that had been placed by the Harvard faculty into the Reagan administration and Republicanism to destroy it from within. And he said, David was everything you could ask for in a mole. He was from Michigan. He said um, he came out of the Midwest, uh, uh, corn fed cow licked the best boob bait for conservatives ever to come out of the Midwest. He came <laughs> to Harvard touting the praises of Ho Chi Minh and left touting the immutability of the Laffer curve. <laughs> and so that was the first time he used boob bait. And then. I started searching boobait, bait, and I found it was a Buckley term. Burb Buckley had used this term in the 50s, and I walked into his office one night, and he was doing papers, watching the McNeil-Lair News Hour. and I said, Senator, I have a question. He said, what? I said, boob was that a Buckley term? He said, yep, stole it, <laughs> unabashedly.
0: We could talk about this all day, and, and we appreciate you being here. Only a couple more questions. Know your time is, is valuable and short. At Words Matter, we pride ourselves on the phrase and in our introduction say that everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Can you talk a little bit about that phrase?
1: Again, it's uh, one of his signature phrases and uh, everyone loves to quote it. Uh, President Obama often did. Uh, And when I was uh, editing his letters... I really tried to find some place where it was written down uh, in one of his books and couldn't find it. He said it many times, but it's um, not documented um, in a book or even in the letters. But it's a wonderful phrase, and uh, I was recently, um, uh, just uh, this week, in Memphis, Tennessee, talking about my New book uh, about Jewish American history, and people said to me, "Oh, you edited that Moynihan book." That's my my favorite phrase is, "Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, uh, but not their own facts." So I find myself saying that uh, uh, in in achingly that I wish Pat were here to talk about the phrase uh, and the meaning of that phrase in the era. Uh, that we're in now in the Trump era because, um, it's evolved. The problem today is not necessarily that people have their own facts. I mean, uh, the, and that the facts are wrong. Although it is true that the White House, not to get p- political about this, have put out, has put out many facts that are in fact wrong. And so the phrase is relevant. In that respect, uh, the fake news term uh, is applied, of course, on all sides to people who put out misinformation and false information. That is a problem today, but that's not the only problem today. The problem today is that everybody is, in fact, entitled to their own facts, and what they do is they take their own facts and assemble them into a narrative and ignore other facts that contradict that narrative. And I think the bigger problem today is that we are enslaved to our own facts and we ignore facts that might contradict them. And if Pat Moynihan were sitting here at this table, I would like to ask him about that because the problem today is that we do not listen to facts that might undercut or challenge our beliefs. We just stick to the facts that support our beliefs. And we're not listening to each other, and we're not respecting facts that the other side mobilizes. And that, in some ways, not to sound preachy or rabbinical in my case, but I think that is a, the fatal flaw of our political system right now. And if Pat were here, he would put this much more eloquently and wittily than I was able to. But I think that's the problem.
0: You know, in law school, we're taught that the best brief writers are the ones that absorb all of the facts from the other side and use them, acknowledge them in the written word and use them to keep pushing your point forward. Those Those are the best briefs that say them out loud, that recognize them, acknowledge them, and then can give the other side with equally powerful weight. Well, I think
1: uh, as a lawyer, uh, that's a, for you to say that is very smart uh, because that's what uh, lawyers do in um, arguments. And it's fatal in – I would say – I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I would say it's fatal if you – Don't provide a narrative that at least acknowledges the existence of the other facts.
0: It makes yours stronger.
1: Yes. And when I was an editorial writer, um, I always, uh, for the New York Times, uh, one of the great pleasures I would have was to call up somebody that I was criticizing and say, here's what I plan to write. Tell me why I'm wrong. Yes. And then think through, you know, make the, refine the argument to acknowledge the, counter arguments. Uh, it was always a fun experience. I remember, right, I used to write about New York City um, politics and government. And I still remember Mayor Rudy Giuliani on the phone saying, you're an idiot, <laughs> 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 which I guess he thought was a fact. But, um, you know, it was, it was fun. But when I was making this point, Uh, recently talking about my book, because Pat Moynihan comes up, even when I'm talking about Jewish American history, people say, well, what about Moynihan? And afterwards, uh, someone came up to me who is a judge at one of the talks I gave and who said, you know, what you're describing is what a jury has to do. They know the facts, but they're given two narratives.
0: It's your story (laughs) and how you tell it.
1: And uh, so I think there there you have it. That's where we are today in our American political system. And I think Pat Moynihan, words mattered for him and facts mattered for him. And um, he was uh, willing to take on facts that challenged his facts. And I wish we had somebody like that today. On your
2: point, I get asked a
1: lot as well. What would he say? And
2: like you, I usually demure because if we could say what he could say, we would be him. And um, But I have a sense that he would probably uh, do something again. In a broader sense, he would uh, look over us at, at the lunch table and say, um, lad, no matter how old you are, you were lad. This is how republics die. And then he would recite 50 pages of Gibbon from memory. And then <laughs> he would. So one of my questions to you or the last question I have to you is – since his departure from the, from the political stage and, and passing from, from Earth here, um, we don't have public intellectuals in American life anymore. Why is that and will we see them again?
1: It's a profoundly difficult question to answer uh, at both levels. I mean, who knows if we'll see it again. You know, hopefully the pendulum could swing back uh, away from the polarization that we're seeing today. Uh, Once we realize that we're destroying our country uh, because of it, uh, maybe somebody will come along and teach us again to listen to each other. We'll see how that uh, happens uh, in the Democratic uh, race uh, upcoming and we'll see it uh, when the Republicans uh, start jockeying for their successor to uh, President Trump. But why is that? Well, I have – I don't want to sound like a troglodyte, uh, (laughs) but I do think that the means of our communication has uh, distorted the way we communicate. And uh, that because of uh, the transformation of the way we get information from – and in a way, it's a democratization, you know, of not having voices, whether it's the New York Times or Walter Cronkite handing down narratives uh, to a credulous populace. We've democratized from that. And where we now get our information is in, you know, the, the technical term is in, in a sharing environment. We live in a sharing, a world where information is shared rather than presented from on high. And there's a lot of um, good that comes from that. But it also seems to have reinforced the polarization because people share facts uh, and information and narratives that obviously they want, that other people uh, with whom they agree will like, quote, like. So we are in a like environment, you know, things we like, yeah. things we share. And um, I think it's it's distorted our political conversation.
0: I think the question is, are people actually reading what they're sharing? Because I, I think at least half the time, that's not even necessarily the case. They just like the headline.
1: They do. It's an... LOL and WTF world. <laughs> so world.
0: with it. <laughs> uh,
2: the book is called Daniel Patrick Moynihan, A Portrait in Letters of an American Visionary. Steve Wiseman, thank you so much for joining us uh, here today at Words Matter. Thank you so much for keeping the senators' words, thoughts, and ideas in front of the public. And please come back because we didn't get to half of what we wanted to do today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you both very much.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter
0: on Apple
1: Podcasts and other podcast providers.